Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. What do we want? A public radio show about shocking and creative protests. When do we want it? Now! Well, that is exactly what you're going to get, and you're going to get it right now, as well as a warning that this episode is not in any way suitable for children. In a little bit, you'll meet Jessica Jin. She's a woman who felt fed up with Texas gun laws, because did you know, most people who are over the age of 21 in that state can openly carry a firearm without any sort of permit, and they can conceal their guns on school campuses if they do have a permit. But you cannot open carry a phallically shaped sex toy without the risk of getting fined. Q, not Glocks. And speaking of genitalia, you'll hear from a protester and spokesperson of an anti-circumcision group, Bloodstained Men and Their Friends. They dress in all white at their protests with a bright red splotch on their crotches. But we're going to get this one started with the splatter of tomato soup heard around the world. There were actually two cans of tomato soup thrown simultaneously onto Vincent van Gogh's Sunflowers painting in London's National Gallery. That was back in October of 2022, and it's important to note that the protesters did this knowing there was a protective glass panel covering the painting. Phoebe Plummer and Anna Holland were the people who threw those cans of tomato soup. They were part of Just Stop Oil a nonviolent civil resistance group demanding that the UK government stop licensing all new oil, gas, and coal projects. Here's Anna explaining how the idea for the infamous soup protest came about. In Stop Oil, we had been in civil resistance against our government since the 1st of October. Uh, so we were taking direct action every single day to demand that the government ends all new oil and gas licenses. And after roughly two weeks of blocking roads in Parliament and causing as much disruption to London as possible, we were still getting maybe five lines from the back page of the newspaper just every day. So we realised that we needed to do something really, really big and really eye-catching to sort of finally get people to talk about the climate crisis and about Just Stop Oil. So that's where we decided to go into the cultural world. And, you know, we thought that... The climate crisis is going to take away everything we love. It's going to take away everything we find beautiful in this world. So we need to make people aware of that. We need to make people understand how it feels to have something so beautiful feel completely threatened. So that's why we went for Van Gogh's Sunflowers, because it's, you know, it's one of the most famous paintings in the world. It's one of the most beautiful paintings I've seen. And allowing people to feel a sense of threat towards something that they find so beautiful and that so many people have a strong connection to helps them understand the level of threat that we face every day from the climate crisis. Uh, how did you choose tomato soup? Um, so there were two reasons why we chose to throw soup rather than, you know, paint or something that looked like oil uh, at the painting. 
The first one is because it adds that extra level of why to our action. It, it, it makes people stop for just that bit longer to think, well, why Sue? Why? And it, it gets them talking about our action even more. And the second reason why we chose soup is because the climate crisis is so closely linked to the cost of living crisis, which we're suffering through in the UK right now, where there are parents starving themselves to feed their children while oil companies are reporting record profits. So we wanted to raise attention of that uh, to the fact that you know families can't even afford to heat a tin of soup. It also, dare I say, went well with the painting. <laughs> the colors did look quite good together, yeah. Um, and you knew that there would be a pane of glass in front of this. And I think that was a really important piece of this. I remember when I first saw the headline and I saw that moment and like that still shot of the painting, my heart, you know, my heart went down to my toes and I thought, oh my God, that's, you know, I want to say priceless, but th that we'll get into that. This is, this is a, an important piece of work. And then I watched it and, and I see, oh, oh God, thank God. It's got a pane of glass in front of it. Now, I want to hear about that tension that I felt that, oh my God, priceless, precious thing. And how maybe that is true, but my reaction also pointed out something that you wanted to point out too, that there was an incongruency between my desire to protect and value this work of art and maybe not prioritizing other things. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly the, the reaction that we were hoping to get from this action. So as you say, it made almost everyone who first saw the action go, oh my God. And it, it created that level of shock and that level of protection or that protective feeling towards the artwork. And when we threw the action, we were doing this on the backdrop of the Pakistan floods that had happened only uh, recently before um, we threw the soup. And I remember just thinking about how those floods displaced 33 million people. That's half the population of the UK equivalent lost their homes, lost everything to this natural disaster, climate crisis-fueled flood, how much priceless artwork do you think was lost in those floods? How many lives was worth so much more than just one painting in an art gallery were lost to those floods? And that's the, the sort of tension that you speak of that we wanted to raise, is why do we care so much about one painting that just happens to be in a gallery and happens to be selected as the one famous painting when we've already lost so much art to the climate crisis already and we're going to lose so much more if our governments don't take action soon. I'd like to hear about the moments before you released the tomato soup. Um, was there any hesitation? Was there any, oh my God, what are we doing? Was What were just those microseconds before the splash? What was going on in you? Oh my goodness. So we, when we got to a room where the painting was in the gallery, there was a group of school kids sat in front of the sunflowers painting, like primary school age, so maybe like eight or nine, a whole class full of them in little like yellow hybrid jackets, and they were all drawing their versions of the sunflowers. So me and Phoebe got there, and we both just like froze in the doorway of the room, and we just kind of, you know, we couldn't talk about what we were going to do, but we kind of looked at each other, just thinking, what do we do? Oh my God, how... Like we can't, we can't throw soup at children. We can't, we can't get any on the children. So we had to just wait until the kids moved on. So we were just walking around the room, like pretending to look for paintings. And I remember when we were looking at certain paintings, just I completely forgot 
what being a person felt like. I completely forgot how to behave like a normal person. And I remember looking at one painting with Phoebe next to me and just going, oh, but the colours are so intense on this one. I wonder what the artist was trying to... And I think I was talking way too loud for any art gallery. Because... Nothing to see here. Definitely a normal person. Exactly. So that was just the most tense moment of it. As soon as the children uh, moved away from the painting, it, it was now or never. And I don't have a very strong memory of actually the throwing off the suit because I was just so fueled by adrenaline. Um, I remember, yeah, you can see in the video, we take our jackets off to reveal our t-shirts. My zip almost got stuck on my jacket, so I had to really like yank the, the jacket open, which I think made it look a bit more dramatic. But I just went completely into this like sort of adrenaline-fueled state when I was throwing the soup. And once I threw the soup and was glued onto the wall, I remember just thinking, yeah, this is where I'm meant to be. This is, I, it just felt so right what I was doing. And I felt completely in the right place, in, in the right time. And it was just a fantastic feeling. And then Phoebe Plummer, who was with you for this, uh, gave a, a speech. What is worth more, art or life? Is it worth more than food? Worth more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? The cost of living crisis is part of the cost of oil crisis. Fuel is unaffordable to millions of cold, hungry families. They can't even afford to heat a tin of soup. Now, I don't mean to take any magic out of it, but like, did they write it down? Did you rehearse it? Well, how did that speech come to be? Um, there's a funny story about that speech. So um, we had, we'd written sort of a vague idea of what we wanted to say um, while we were going to war. And we'd originally written it that Phoebe would say something and I would say something. But we had completely not planned for how quickly the security would clear the room once we did it. Um, so we thought we'd have maybe, you know, four or five minutes of people still in the room where we could talk to them. And then, so Phoebe started talking first. And the first part, you know, what's worth more after life? That was, we'd worked that out. We'd, we'd scripted that. And then I think just from sheer adrenaline, Phoebe just kept talking. And I think you can see a part of the video where I kind of look at them because I'm thinking, oh, God, like they're clearing people out of the room and we've not gotten to like the other half of the speech that we want to that we want to address because the speech is going to go on to talk about, I like we understand that you may feel anger towards us, but please redirect that anger to the government who's driven us to this action. Um, but the room had been cleared uh, by that point. Who was filming it? The video was filmed and published by a Guardian journalist. Guardian is one of the newspapers in the UK, uh, Damien Gale. And he knew about the action beforehand. So he, he sort of had a, he's worked with Joseph Hall a lot in the past. You know, he's filmed a lot of our actions and uh, reported on us quite a bit. So he was there beforehand waiting for the action. You glued your hands to the wall. Uh, did it hurt when you got released? How did you get off of the wall? Superglue is one of the main tools in the Just Off Oil sort of tool belt, if you will, whenever we take action. So the police in the UK have gotten very accustomed to dealing with superglued activists, but they have what's known as a debonding team, which they'll deploy to, you know, wherever we're glued on. So these specialists will come and they'll, they've got sort of, I guess, syringes of uh, solvent, which they'll insert into our hands to just like melt the glue, I suppose. So we can, so our hands can come away from water. It doesn't hurt at all. Although 
Usually the super glue is a lot more effective, but when you're gluing onto soup, it makes it a lot harder to stick to the wall. So by the time the debonding team arrived, my hand was already like half off the wall because the super gotten in and already kind of messed up the super glue. So I was just pretending to be stuck to the wall, even when he was, um, even when the officer was um, pumping the solvent into my hand and trying to pull it off, I was with all my might trying to keep my hand on the wall just to keep it going a bit longer. It's it's probably safe to assume that the museum won't let you in again, and maybe they've got your face pinned on a wall in the back room by the coffee maker or something. Um, did you have to pay for the cleanup or any sort of damage, if there was any? Yeah, so this is a part of an ongoing uh, trial that Phoebe and I have. So we uh, we got charged with criminal damage. And according to UK law, there's a stipulation where you can either cause criminal damage below 5,000 which means you'll be seen by magistrate's court and it's usually a much smaller trial, it's a much smaller affair, or you can get charged with criminal damage over 5,000, for which you'll be seen by Crown Court, which means you'll be uh, seen by a jury, and it's a much longer process. So Phoebe and I got charged with criminal damage over 5,000, which means we have a Crown Court hearing next summer, and we've been charged with criminal damage of £6,000, which we're going to be contesting because... But they, they wiped up the painting with kitchen roll while we were still glued to the wall. And the painting was back hanging on display just six hours after our action. So, yeah, that's, and yeah, we are both banned from all galleries and museums in the UK, which is which has been tough. What do you say to people who maybe say, right message, I'm behind you, this all sucks, but wrong way of doing it? Most people I'd say, okay, take action. Show us what is the most effective way of taking action. Because, you know, before joining Just Stop Oil, I had tried every form of non-destructive action. I had attended marches. I had organized marches. I'd signed more petitions than I can count. I'd written letters to my member of parliament, so much I'm pretty sure he hates me now. And I gave about four years of my life. So I'm, I'm 21, so from the ages of 16 to 20, um, I gave all of that time to, to taking those actions, to going on marches, signing petitions. And after those four years, absolutely nothing had changed. I had achieved nothing. And because of that, I gave up a bit. I didn't feel empowered enough to be able to go on taking action. I didn't feel like I could be a part of a climate activist circle. So for a year, I did absolutely nothing toward, for the climate movement. And it was horrible. It was just the worst year of my life because the climate crisis didn't go away just because I wasn't doing anything about it. It just made it so much harder to deal with and to bear. And then suddenly with Just Stop Oil, Phoebe and I, we gave 25 hours of our life, of you know, doing the action and being held in the police cell. And we got more people talking about the climate crisis than when those 33 million people had their lives destroyed by floods in Pakistan. So from my own personal experience, Disruptive action, the action we're taking with Just Stop Oil, is the most effective thing we can be doing. Already in the UK, every single uh, major political party, apart from the Conservatives, which is our ruling party, has agreed to our, de our demand of no new oil. So what we're doing is working. And if the people who criticise our methods can show me a new method that we haven't tried and that will work, then I am all for it. I will absolutely join them on that. 
I think about how there's a lot to be angry about now. Uh, feels like now more than ever, partially because there are new problems and partially because we have the ability to solve so many problems and we just either don't or are taking our sweet time as humanity to figure it out. And so there's this frustration building with so many people. And I wonder for those people, regardless of age, who feel frustrated, who feel angry and want to be part of change, but feel like, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what the right thing to do is for me. Can I even do anything? What would you like to say to them? I'm just a 21-year-old poetry student. I'm, I'm not some big, hardcore, radical activist. Um, I'm not any different from them just because I take action just off. Well, I'm an ordinary person exactly like them. And I've had the exact same worries, even now, even though I'm still working with just off oil, I still have those concerns of what can I as just one person do to take on this fight and to help move this forward. And all it took was two people, me and Phoebe, to change the entire discourse around the climate movement. So I would say the best thing you can do right now is take action. And I know it feels like there's so much that we need to fight against, especially in America. It feels like many of your politicians are choosing every single day to, to work against you, be it LGBT rights, be it reproductive rights of women, be it the climate crisis. But what we need to understand is the climate crisis doesn't discriminate and it's only going to get worse. So we are not going to survive to fight all of these individual battles if we don't fight for the climate first and if we don't fight for our survival. So if you're feeling overwhelmed by how much there is to fight, join the climate movement because as soon as we get one win, as soon as we end the oil industry, as soon as we just take down one part of this massive system, it's going to make everything else so much easier and so much more achievable. Anna Holland, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. When we get back, hear from a spokesperson of an anti-circumcision group. They protest while wearing all-white suits with big red splotches over their crotch. And it's an emotional experience. When you are most vulnerable, when you've just come into the world and you're looking for support and love and warmth and kindness and touch, and they're attacked with a knife on the most sensitive part of your body, I mean, how could you do that to a child? And after getting more and more angry about school shootings, one woman came up with a creative protest idea. These people on the radio were like, well, you know, you just have to be prepared for the next one. And I was like, what do you mean be prepared for the next one? What a bunch of dildos. And speaking of dildos, I bet you can't even openly carry a dildo in Texas without getting into some sort of trouble. She was right. Find out how she protested gun laws with thousands of dildos. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. 
ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. The rest of this episode about unconventional protests is not in any way, shape, or form suitable for children. Imagine you're moseying through a city center and suddenly you see people holding up signs that say things like, foreskin is not a birth defect, it's not your mother's penis, I did not consent, and circumcision is genital mutilation. The people holding these signs are wearing all-white outfits, and over their crotches is a giant red splotch. You're witnessing a protest by the blood-stained men and their friends. They call themselves intact-ivists. Harry Giermond is their spokesperson, and he's been protesting with them since 2014. I asked him why. Because circumcision is a fraudulent medical practice. It's uh, worthless. It's done without the consent of the patient. It's a forced amputation, which is a severe human rights violation. And the rest of the uh, advanced world doesn't do this to their baby boys. And medical communities across uh, the advanced world have condemned American doctors for continuing this outdated and vicious and harmful and wicked practice. Was there a moment in your life where you said, that's it, I'm going to do something about this? What was that moment? I was when I was about 40 years old, and I really came to, I saw whose bodies, whose rights on public television in San Francisco. And there was a film uh, there in this uh, documentary about circumcision. There was um, a, a film of a baby circumcision. And I was just shocked at the violence and the brutality and the absolute unfairness of of this attack on the most sensitive part of a a helpless person's body with a knife screaming in agony and i realized that was me that's that exact that exact thing happened to me and at the time i was born they didn't use anesthetic i was traumatized like that and so there's this initial shock in the sense of well almost self-pity and then it's like okay now what do i do somebody else is counting nobody protected me so I want somebody to look and say, you know, okay, somebody did protect me. That's It's up to me to do that or up to the bloodstained man and everybody to do something. We are capable. We're adults. We're not the helpless baby anymore. We have we are the ones who are charged to do something about this. What was it like the first time you put on that white outfit with that big red splotch on the crotch? What did that feel like for you? I almost cried. I was just, it just meant so much to me. I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of breaking up right now. It just meant so much to me to be with these people. And that we have that reaction a lot. People just, they just tear up. This is so important to them that somebody is speaking out for them. So yeah, I was just uh, having a real emotional response. I just was so glad to be there and immediately just took to it like a duck to water. It was just, it's something that needs to be done, and I'm capable of doing it. So I was really happy to be there. I'd like to hear more about that emotion, because 
I feel like in the United States, of course, it's normalized um, to a degree. And when I also think about the idea that, you know, this operation, this procedure was often done without anesthetic, that doctors didn't think babies felt pain. It wasn't until 1987 that the American Academy of Pediatrics formally declared that it was unethical to continue to operate on infants without the use of anesthetics. My understanding is that um, they thought babies couldn't really feel pain, but it, it was just a misread of their gestures and the ways that they would physically react. And so sure, sure enough, yeah, turns out human babies do feel pain. And so I think about the ways that it's normalized now and um, what, and this is impossible to really know for sure, but what the trauma of a circumcision with or without anesthesia does to a human being. And so when I think about you getting emotional by seeing all these other people who are standing up for this, something that matters to you, if you feel like you do share some trauma. Oh, absolutely. And I'd just like to point out that Anybody who's ever held a baby in their hands knows that they're exquisitely sensitive to their environment and they feel pain, obviously. Anybody who's heard a baby cry knows that. How could these people have perpetrated this lie and somehow convinced themselves that babies don't feel pain? It's just insane. Now, in terms of my trauma, yeah, I agree. I was traumatized. I'm sure of it. And when I saw that video of a, I knew it. I knew it in just in my bones. This is what happened to me. And when you are most vulnerable, when you've just come into the world and you're looking for support and love and warmth and kindness and touch, and they're attacked with a knife on the most sensitive part of your body, what would they expect? I mean, how could you do that to a child? And how they've gotten away with this and convinced parents this is a good idea. It's just, it's madness, just madness. When Bloodstained Men goes out and protests, what kind of reactions do you get? It's all over the map. People are uh, very angry. Some people are very supportive. A lot of people try to pretend that they didn't see us. And sometimes parents go by and, and shield the eye of their children, of their sons, so that they don't see it. And of course, that doesn't work. But uh, yeah, it's all over the map. But I, I believe over time, the response has been more and more positive. When you think about the ideal future, for circumcision in the United States, which I imagine for you would be zero circumcisions in the United States, zero circumcisions worldwide. Would you like legislation changes? How do you think this would work? Well, uh, the female genital mutilation law from 1996 provides a good model, and that is it's zero tolerance for any, any uh, even a pinprick, that's just zero tolerance for genital mutilation of girls. And it doesn't matter about the beliefs of the parents. The girl is protected regardless. And the only case when any kind of intervention is allowed under the law is if there's a true medical necessity, not, oh, it would be nice to be, not that. In the case where it absolutely must be done, then that's when it may be done. So that's a good model. Under the Constitution, uh, boys are entitled to equal protection under the law. So as it stands now, the boys should be given the same protection that girls have, which is absolute protection, regardless of the belief of the parents, uh, regardless of the belief of doctors or anyone else, the boy has a right to his own body, just like girls have the right to their own bodies. That's the way it should be. Uh, we know that law doesn't always work the way you think it should. And uh, law follows society. So 
one of the most important things that needs to be done is trying to influence social norms, which is what we're doing. So I would like the Supreme Court to say, yes, boys need to be covered equally with girls, and that's that. I'm not expecting that to happen anytime soon. There are some people listening to our conversation, and they've been circumcised themselves, and they're thinking, yeah, I hear you, buddy, uh, but look at me. I turned out fine, and I like the way it looks. I like the way it feels. I like everything about it, and if I ever get the opportunity to circumcise my kid, I'm going to do it. What do you say to them? Many men understand or experience that the most sensitive part of their penis, many cut men experience that the most sensitive part of their penis is the circumcision scar. And once they realize that's where the sensitivity is, and then you tell them, well, you had you would have had 15 square inches as sensitive or more sensitive if they hadn't cut you, and you've lost that, and you've gone through life sexually blinded. Why would you want to do that to your son? Yeah, yeah it's too bad that it happened to you. It's too bad that it happened to me. But that's not a reason to continue it. That's a reason to stop it. And sometimes I point out that, you know, your son is your son, but he's not your property. You don't own him. He should be making those decisions for himself. There are also a lot of people listening to our conversation who have chosen to circumcise their children. And right now they're feeling really guilty, uh, maybe a tad defensive, um, but they also hear you. And maybe they even wish they hadn't. What do you say to them? Well, we used to call parents who realized they made a mistake regret parents. But now we call them defrauded parents because the burden, the onus belongs on the medical profession who have fraudulently promoted this to parents who trusted them. The medical profession has abused their authority, abused their prestige, abused their power by selling this harmful, permanently injurious practice fraudulently to parents who trusted them. So the parents have been defrauded and Rather than blame yourself, you should blame the people who lied to you. That's what I would tell them. And what about those who do it for religious reasons? I understand that the practice is rooted in Genesis, when God instructs Abraham to circumcise himself and all of his descendants as a sign of their contract with God. What do you say to those folks? Well, there's two versions of Genesis. Genesis 11, uh, the covenant is kept with an animal sacrifice. About 1,100 years later, Genesis 15 was added, and the covenant was kept with a human sacrifice. It's a human sacrifice because every part of a human is human. If you destroy part of a human, you've committed a human sacrifice. So for those who say, well, we want to go back to the old ways, well, the oldest old ways, you know, you'd kill a pigeon and you leave your baby alone. So that's all I have to offer. You know, I don't think it's going to convince a lot of believers, but Although we did a show about emotional support animals, uncommon emotional support animals, and one of them was an emotional support pigeon. So maybe uh, maybe they could perform this sacrifice on, on a tick. Nobody likes ticks. Right. How long do you think it'll take until the circumcision rate on planet Earth is zero? I, I think there is a tipping point where people come to the realization that this can't go on. In the UK, it happened uh, shortly after World War II that they decided that this was a waste of our resources and that they realized that 17 boys a year were dying in the UK from circumcision and they just said, no, it's over. Let's not, not do this anymore. 
in New Zealand, it was overnight. The medical authority said, no, this is over. We're not going to do this anymore. And then it was over. In British Columbia, the provincial health plan decided to stop covering it. And immediately there was a radical drop in the circumcision rate. Not to zero, but way lower than it was. I think when you've previously compared circumcision to female genital mutilation, there's this switch that gets flipped in some people where they feel like, oh, that equals that. Right. The victim is a powerless child or infant. So there's always an abuse of power in genital mutilation of children. The pain is the same, whether the victim is male or female. The loss of erogenous tissue is the same. The violation of rights is the same. They are completely different in one way, and that is the scale is completely different. And since the FGM law was passed in 1996, there have been tens of millions of boys subject to genital mutilation, and we know of only 100 girls that were uh, try or that were defended under this law. So the scale is completely different. Another way to think about it is if you're in a crowd in the United States, say a movie theater, a shopping center, a bus, you're surrounded by genital mutilation victims, and every one of them is male. That's a typical crowd in the United States. And few people talk about it. We are. Well, I've asked everything I planned on. Is there anything that I missed that you want to make sure you mention? The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 3, says everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. Security of person means your body belongs to you and only to you. Nobody has a right to cut off healthy parts of your body. This is fundamental to the whole concept of human rights. It's 70 plus years old. It's well established. Most nations have signed on to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The United States thinks it's a champion of human rights. We like to present ourselves as such, but we have absolutely ignored this monstrous human rights catastrophe within our own borders. So we need to live up to our ideals and defend human rights at home. Well, Harry Giermund, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Kaiun. After the break, protesting gun laws with dildos. I think we had like 5,000 dildos to give out slash sex toys, and I, we gave them all away. They were gone. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay tuned. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf, and this is another big old warning that little kids are not the right audience for this final segment of our show about shocking and creative protests, and that's partially because we're going to be saying the word Glocks, which, as organizer Jessica Jin points out, does not need to be bleeped for radio, but the full name of her protest, featuring over 5,000 phallic sex toys, will need to be bleeped. Back in 2016, she organized Not Glocks, taking place at the University of Texas at Austin, here, she can explain. Texas passed campus carry, which allows students to conceal carry handguns inside their backpacks in university classrooms. In Texas, open carry at the time was also a thing. You can openly carry a, a loaded rifle anywhere you want with no training, no license. And Texas is now a permitless carry state. 
So now you don't even need a permit to openly carry a handgun in Texas. So basically in 2016, this was the creeping in of the loosening of where and why you can have a gun. And they said that you can conceal carry a handgun in class. And all you have to do is sit in a classroom for like some amount of time and then hit a target from 10 feet away, standing still. So you don't really have to have very good skills. You just have to know the legalities of when and why you can shoot people without going to jail. They wouldn't have to shoot this gun from 10 feet away with somebody like yelling at them. No. Or threatening them or no adrenaline attacking them. No adrenaline. No. You just stand there stationary, hit the target generally and you twitch a finger. Yeah. So I, when this law was being passed, um, this was in 2015 when I first heard of it happening, I heard news of a number of school shootings in the country that week on the radio. And these people on the radio were like, well, you know, you just have to be prepared for the next one. And I was like stuck in Austin traffic and I was mad already. And I was like, what do you mean be prepared for the next one? What a bunch of dildos. And speaking of dildos, I bet you can't even openly carry a dildo in Texas without getting into some sort of trouble. And I DM'd my friends about it. And I was like, hey, you guys, you think you can carry a dildo around in Texas? They're like, I don't know, Jessica, this is another one of your schemes. Just go look it up. So I was like, fine, bet. I'll go look it up. And I went into the Texas like law book, I guess, whatever I could find online. And I saw a literal statute that says you can't openly carry a dildo in Texas. Well, they're like a phallic object that might offend somebody. It's a class B misdemeanor. And so wouldn't it be so funny if on the first day of school, everyone just tied a big dildo to their backpack? Because imagine cops chasing thousands of students around for having a on their backpack when there's literal loaded guns in other people's backpacks. So I created a Facebook event. I was like, wouldn't it be funny? Ha ha. Hashtag not Glocks and just went to bed, just kind of giggling to myself. And I woke up the next morning and 10,000 people had RSVP'd. There were sex companies in my inbox being like, where do we send dildos? There were journalists in my inbox saying, what are your political views? Why did you do this? What does this all mean? And I was like, oh no. Basically internet troll turned campus organizer overnight. (laughs) Will you talk about some of the pushback you got before any dildos hit the street? People took it very literally. The most frustrating comment I would get is like, what do you expect? Don't women need guns on campus to prevent sexual assault? Isn't sexual assault on campus a big thing? And don't you need a gun to protect yourself? And what are you going to do? Hit hit your assailant with a dildo over the head? They're just going to take that dildo and assault you again. You know, it was like the ugliest possible comments. I think because the protest hit on masculinity in a way that I didn't think about originally, but it was just so on the nose. I think that really hit hit a nerve for a lot of people. And therefore, the kind of toxicity that I got wasn't fully just gun stuff. It was like toxic masculine gun stuff, the worst of it, actually. At any point, did you fear for your life? This was like in 2015 when I first cracked the joke and it went viral the first time. It was it was a full year before the protest. My logic was like, okay, these guys are threatening me, saying that I should be removed from the gene pool. But my logic was, well, they're mad because they're afraid that they're going to get their guns taken away. And the number one way to get your guns taken away is to hurt somebody with your gun. So I don't think that these people who are really obsessed with their guns are going to hurt me because they're going to get their guns taken away. And my friends are like, Jessica, you just got your address published by a Nazi. 
you think you're just going to shrug this off. You should actually leave. You should leave your house. So I did. I, I like went on a little cross country camping road trip. It was fun. Okay. So how did you get from, okay, I started something that's a little bit scary and out of control and also hilarious. How did you go from taking that road trip and getting away and getting a little bit of distance from it to this thing is happening? Actually, a lot of Sandy Hook families reached out to me um, and they were like, are you okay? Are you drinking water? <laughs> like this is so intense. And when you start to get hate for stuff like this, you forget to take care of yourself. So um, my friend, Sarah Clements, who's mother Abby Clements was a teacher at Sandy Hook. Sarah reached out to me and was like, make sure you're taking care of yourself and take your time with this stuff. So it was that combination of understanding that there's actually stakes because there are people who've been through this and feel it on a more visceral level. There are survivors for who this is very serious. I can't just go out and be like, haha, funny dildo thing. I have to be, I have to balance the fact that people are genuinely impacted by gun violence and still feel it every single day. Choosing my words carefully and trusting those words um, was a huge project, but a huge growth point for me. So how many people ended up showing up uh, with or in support of open carry dildos? I think we had like 5,000 dildos to give out slash sex toys. And I, we gave them all away. They were gone. I don't know how many. We didn't get a full head count. What's funny is as a first time organizer, there were lots of things that I did wrong. Like we had like a clipboard where people signed up so we could contact them later to continue to organize together. Lost that clipboard somewhere along the way. Don't know where it was. <laughs> it was also like a, like 100 degrees outside in the middle of August. And we were like, you know what we should do with programming? We should let these... I love these professors. They're amazing people, but professors can be a little long-winded. And we were like, let these professors like talk to these students in the heat of August for as long as professors talk, you know? And like, <laughs> it was a delight. It was such a, I had such a blast, but that day we had also gotten like a pretty scary threat um, over the email being like making it seem like the security of the event wasn't, wasn't chill. And I was like crying in the campus security office that mo that very morning so during that protest, I was like, well, if reporters want to talk to somebody, they'll talk to one of these student organizers. I graduated already. I was like, I don't even need to be the face of this. Just talk to one of the students. I'm going to just go lay in the back and try not to die. And if they find me, they find me. Good luck. <laughs> well, are you saying that you were concerned that security wouldn't protect you? I was a little afraid. I was just like, I don't know where this threat came from. There's like, it's not just about me anymore. They're like threatening the entire student body basically at this point. And I hadn't really slept that week. And so it was just, it was so intense, but it ended up being a delightful experience. Like we had people juggling dildos on like a, on a unicycle. We had like these amazing, like throwing dildos out into a crowd moment. We had um, this fun local brass band show up um, called Interrobang. That was a delight. <laughs> was there any point where you were able to take a step back during that day, during the juggling and during the speeches and during everything and get a wide view at what you had been a major leading part of creating and take it in and feel something? And if so, how did that feel? It was really hard in the moment. And honestly, it was hard even in like the one or two years where there was still steam for Cox Not Glocks. There was a documentary that I had to go around and promote. There was just a lot going on. Then Trump gets elected, right? This was 2016. 
2016. So honestly, I had a beautiful fundraising deck built out with these gorgeous photos that my friend Marshall took. Um, and I was like, I'm going to go raise so much money to do more student activism in the South, because if these sex companies want advertising, they can't get it traditionally, but we can help them ride the news wave because everyone's trying to pass campus carry laws right now. So I was like, oh my God, I'm going to go raise so much dildo money and do so much cool, fun, irreverent activism. Um, and this is going to be my thing. But then Trump gets elected and families are being separated. And I'm like, what am I doing? Raising dildo money when, when hitting the fan in this country. And so my sales had to switch directions. I had to be like, okay, I have to join whatever bigger thing is happening to fight the bigger tides of trends in this country. But I wasn't surprised by Trump getting elected. I think that clock's giving me the exposure to the amount of toxicity and hate in this country, like years ahead, like a year and a half ahead of all of this. It just made it like just more of the same for me, just more intense. There is something about the absurdity of this protest, right? I mean, at one point I saw an interview with you and, and you said you're fighting absurdity with absurdity. What do you think this protest accomplished? I think that this protest gave people permission, young people especially, who are like me, who hadn't openly taken a stance on something so intense as guns in America, it gave them permission to participate. It gave them an example of what joy in change-making could look like. For me, it taught me that I can do anything that I want. I think for a lot of students, it, it taught them that showing up for something that matters can be joyful. It doesn't have to be doom and gloom and fear. And for me, that's a more important lesson than ever because a lot of us burnt ourselves out during the Trump administration because we were organizing from a place of fear and anger. And now that I'm looking, now that I've recovered a little bit and I'm making my next moves and deciding what else I want to direct my energy towards, this lesson that when it's joy-filled and you get to laugh a little bit is incredibly important for me. <laughs> So can you carry dildos openly in Texas yet? No. Okay. Somebody will be offended and somebody will complain and you will get a ticket at least. But if you are offended and complain at the sight of a gun. Too bad. So sad. Okay. Um, you talk about joy in protest. Are there any other examples of people using joy and humor in protest that you've seen? A lot of people do organize from a place of love. And I think like offensive joy in some way, there's space for that in every movement. I read an amazing book that my friend recommended actually about AIDS activists. It's called How to Survive a Plague. And that really impacted my view on how all this stuff works, because in the 80s and 90s, when gay activists were organizing for their own lives, like, I mean, there were people who were like wrapping Congress people's houses in giant condoms, trying to dump their friends' dead bodies on the White House lawn. But then there were people in suits who were meeting with the CDC and meeting with the federal government being like, please fund research. There's room for lots of ways to protest. And when you're trying to get into something, I think the best way is to find out what people are, are, are already doing so you don't wind up reinventing the wheel. It's funny to be like, what wisdom does Jessica have from this? Because I fell in. Oftentimes I look back on 
black box and I try to dismiss it. I'm like, that was just dumb luck. That was just a dildo joke that oopsie went viral. But then I'll go back and be like, give yourself some credit, Jessica. That was actually kind of smart and funny. And a lot of people will, will remember it. Yeah, seven years later, and you're talking to me about it, and someone's hearing about it for maybe the first time, and they're thinking, wait a minute, you can't, you can't openly carry sex toys and wait, what? And it's so it's still happening. It's still reverberating. Yeah, it's still I mean, now every time there is like a gun, an open carry gun demonstration, somebody photoshops a dildo into their hands. And I'm like, at the very least, that meme will just live on. Yeah, but I like look back on that and I like vacillate between being dismissive of it and being just shrugging off being like that was luck, that was a funny joke and being like actually that's an important part of my story and it's just it was just a beginning for me actually. I'm still defining the way that I show up in the world. I don't know what it is about maybe it's our generation or this moment where everybody feels kind of a need to be part of something and to make it make an impact in their with the short life that we have here on earth it made me think really deeply about what movements mean and my role in it and these ideas will continue to evolve forever i think well jessica jen thank you so much for talking with me no problem audacious is always lovingly produced by khalil rahman jessica severin de martinez meg fitzgerald meg dalton and katie talarski at connecticut public radio in hartford if you like this episode check out the one we did with manuel oliver he's the father of joaquin oliver who was one of 17 students and teachers murdered at marjorie stoneman douglas high school in parkland florida in 2018 manuel is also an artist one of his most well-known pieces is this aerial photo of 52 empty school buses parked in the form of an AR-15. He titled the piece NRA Children's Museum. He also tells the story of the time he drove one of those buses to Senator Ted Cruz's house, presenting him via a security guard with a souvenir of sorts from his son, a short essay that Joaquin wrote when he was just 12 years old, calling for the senator to support universal background checks. We spoke with Manuel shortly before and after the sentencing of his son's killer, who was ultimately spared the death penalty. We'll have a link to it at ctpublic.org audacious, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Stay in touch with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Kion Wolf, and you can always send me an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>